Start working on how you design the experience people have working with you and how you can design feedback systems for yourself so that you're not only experiencing your world from your own standpoint and your own actions, but you're also starting to like find ways for people to give you information on, on how it's for them. Welcome to Design to Be Conversation, presented by Design to Be, and hosted by Design to Be founder and CEO, me, Rachel Weissman. Designed to Be is a community for designers to grow their emotional intelligence. In this show, I have conversations with design leaders about how investing in their EQ has impacted their design career. In today's episode, I speak with Mei Li Ko. Mei Li is an interdisciplinary, quadricultural, twice immigrant artist, researcher, designer, inventor, who combines invention with cultural practices, bright colors, faces on things, and glitter. She brings over 20 years of experience in design including serving as VP of Design at Khan Academy, co-founding two companies, Scribble Together and Sprout, formerly known as Makespace, and recently creating music and dance toy game for the new Playdate game platform. Before that, she worked on new technologies at Apple and other organizations, ranging from IBM Research, the MIT Media Lab, and Dynamic Land, to the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, Universal Music Group, and Oakland Museum of California. She also DJs, dances, writes, makes art, speaks, teaches, plays music, and cultivates joyful ways to subvert the status quo. We dive into what it means to manage and lead by understanding the emotions that drive people's behaviors in an organization. The power and responsibility of being a manager versus influencing as an individual contributor. Ways to communicate your true authentic voice as a new manager. And how EQ can help you manage more humanely and inclusively in the future. Welcome, May Lee, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Rachel, for that intro and lead up. Y'all, I'm really excited about today. And with that, before we dive into things, so one of the great parts about this format is that we can take questions from all of you. So we're going to reserve the last 10 minutes for questions. But if you do have any questions throughout the course of our conversation, start to populate them into the chat, and we'll be sure to answer them in chronological order. So diving into things. So when we were chatting, uh, we had a call maybe a month ago, a couple months ago of, okay, what do we want to talk about? And after brainstorming a bit, we landed on management. And there's a bunch of different ways that we can break down what it means to manage, which we're going to dive more into today. But I'd love to learn for those people who are like, "Ah, maybe I want to manage, maybe I don't. Can you share the point in your career when you realize? hey, yes, I'm ready to switch into management. And what are those signals that folks can keep an eye out for if they're ready to switch into that role? Okay. Yeah. So this is going to be a very honest answer, which is that I had never set out to get into management. I loved designing. I loved design work, love prototyping. I just wanted to keep my hands in that and wasn't really trying to be in management. But when I was working at Khan Academy, at some point in time, I felt like the best way to serve what we were trying to accomplish at the organization was to have more clout to advocate for design, the practices of design and the way those things were going to serve, you know, their students and our teachers. And so over time, I was doing everything that I could to help essentially help the quality of everything that we were doing go up. And over time, what that meant was that I had to gain certain levels of influence and I had to be in certain rooms to help with decision making. And ultimately, at some point in time, my manager said, you know, I think that I'd like you to consider taking the VP of design spot, which actually I helped advocate for 
the full story is that at first she wasn't sure if she needed a VP of design. She knew that she needed a VP of product and a VP of engineering, and she was unconvinced of design. And I essentially told her that I felt very strongly that for design to succeed in the organization, she needed somebody who's going to peer, going to be a peer to engineering and product. So she thought about it and then came back to me and said, I think you should do this. At that point in time, I hadn't officially been in management. I had done a lot of creative directorship, design directorship, but that was not the same as formally being a manager. And so I asked her, I said, well, do I have to actually manage to take the spot? And she said, yes, it's time. You have to do that. There's no way that you can take this role and advocate at this level for what it is you want to advocate for without also being a manager. So I was thrown into the deep end and that's how I wound up managing. I think the signs that people should keep an eye out for that show that they're ready or interested in being managers is when you start to show an interest in the systems around what makes the design good, or that's something that strikes your interest. Because one thing about management is that you're no longer directly moving the hands of design in a product. That's not your role anymore. You're designing a system around that that allows the people in your team to do their best work. I have a couple of different ways of explaining it. I think one of them is if any of you have ever tried to play an instrument that's a shaker for anybody who plays music, there's seeds inside a container that move around to make the sound. But unlike a piano or a marimba or a drum, you can't directly make the sound yourself. You can only move the container and then the objects inside it. In this case, it's objects because it's an instrument. Obviously, people are not. Um, and there are seeds that have their own will. But you can actually touch the thing that's making the sound, right? When you're playing this kind of instrument. In the way management is like that as well, because you can't move people's hands to do stuff. You can only create the system on the outside and allow people to move within it themselves. And I think that's the biggest thing to notice whether or not you're curious about that or not. There's a lot of reasons not to do it. You know, I think that sometimes people really are excited about mentorship. And I think that there's a lot more to it than mentorship. Actually, Kat Small, I put this in the Twitter thread, but Kat Small tweeted out an article that she recently wrote. And that gets into a little bit as far as like reasons not to do it. But it does involve a lot more than the sort of feel-good aspects of helping somebody grow as a designer, for better or for worse. One, I feel like mentor and being a mentor is kind of having its like heyday or it's like it's like golden time where so many people are like, I want to be a mentor, I want to be a mentor. And similarly, I feel like there's much praise and also responsibility that's respected of being a design lead. And I feel like there's also this fine line that folks can dance of, okay, but am I managing or am I leading? And we're often told, whether it be from above, below, to the side, that everyone here is a leader. <laughs> so how can we break down those perspectives of the difference of management and being an IC of leading in that way? I think the biggest difference is the realness of the power that you have to wield carefully when you're a manager. Because at the time that you actually become a manager, you are directly responsible for hiring, firing, promoting, funding. And all of those decisions add up to what you create within the team, right? Those are some of the... You think about those as incentives, right? Like how are you currently being judged as a designer about whether or not you're doing a good job, right? What kinds of things can you do that will lead to a pay raise or a promotion or a bonus or greater equity? What are the things that lead to you getting hired? What are the things that are going to be the things that lead to you having lower pay or being fired? All of those types of things are going to shape your behavior. And those are the things that your manager has power over. So... I think it's really important for people to recognize that that is a position of power and responsibility. And it is dramatically different from being a creative lead. Obviously, leads, design leads, creative leads have can have some influence over how a designer is perceived, the quality of their output, like all kinds of things. But it's different from actually being the person who sits in the meeting and determines the numbers that then go into a spreadsheet, that then go through finance, turn into a paycheck that lands in someone's bank account. So that's what I would say is like extremely dramatically different. If you think about the employee experience the same way that, you know, we as designers oftentimes are thinking about customer flows, right? Like where somebody, somebody's first touch point with the company, how are they signing up? How are they getting in? What does it feel like when they unsubscribe? How easy do you make it for them to unsubscribe? And what is their experience in the middle? All of that type of stuff. When you're in management, 
you play a hand in designing that end-to-end flow, somebody's first touch point with a company all the way down to the end, regardless of whether or not they leave voluntarily or if they leave involuntarily, those are all aspects of what you're designing as opposed to the product. Of course, you still have to be involved in the product to some extent, depending on the company. I know some companies' managers are not nearly as involved in product stuff. In some of them, they really are. Of course, you need to understand enough to make sure that people have the work that they're, you know, that they're going to be tackling on a day-to-day, week-over-week, month-month, quarter-quarter basis. But that isn't necessarily your primary thing. If you only did that, then you wouldn't be able to succeed at this job. Yeah. So we've started uh, hinting at this bit, and I feel like we've done a a great job to set some foundation of how folks can start to realize, okay, is management for me? Is it not? Am I already kind of managing or am I leading? And I'm curious for folks who are just thinking about getting into management or possibly new managers, what are some common challenges that are what folks typically should expect? This is a great question. I think the very I'm going to try and list them in order of urgency. I think the first one that I often hear of about is people are still trying to complete everything that's on their plate to the same level of perfection that they're used to doing as like an incre- very very high powered IC like a you know and that becomes impossible because the larger your team grows if you think about it like the chance that something is blowing up in somebody's life that you need to cover for slash figure out how to cover for, make sure that something gets delivered. Like if you've got one person on your team that, you know, it's going to happen every so often, but when there's like five, 10, 15, you get to 12 or 20, that's going to be happening on a very regular basis just because of life. You know, even if you were to just toss a coin and be like, is something going down for someone or not? So that's one thing is just recognizing that there are some things that you're going to have to prioritize and make sure are done well. And there's other things that you're just not going to be... You have to choose to say that. I know about that problem right now. I can't get to that right now because this other thing is happening. And I think that's really, really hard when you're used to controlling all of the pixels and you can't move people systems the way you move pixel systems. They just don't move the same way. And so I think that's the hardest one is recognizing that you can't, there's no way you can do it all. Now it's about prioritizing, you know, day over day, week over week. And, you know, if you were to toss a coin also, this is something my mentor told me when I started. She said, look, you know, 50% of the time, you're probably going to be wrong. Just 50-50. That's just like, <laughs> you take it down to bare probability, that's likely what's going to happen. So that's the first thing I'd say. I think another thing that I see is people really struggling with their own emotional needs in ways that aren't necessarily in in the best service for the team. So for example, if there's a deep need to be liked, a deep need to be right, a deep need to do it all, to have your name in front of stuff, all those types of things, like every strength and weakness that you have as a leader, and especially so as a manager, winds up being amplified because it's affecting more people, right? So so normally if it's like if it's just you and I having a conversation, then there's something annoying about me. It's only affecting you. But when there's like five, 10, 12, 20 people or 50 or a hundred, you know, the effects of that become magnified. So being really hyper aware of your own shortcomings and needs and trying to build systems so that those are not the things that that's not the place that you're speaking from, right? If you're trying to give somebody a piece of hard feedback and your own need to be liked is overriding you giving, like ensuring that that communication is effective so that the other person actually understands and like checking for understanding and saying like, Hey, I said this to you. Is it clear? Do you know what you need to do next versus trying to just make sure that you're still liked at the end of the conversation? That's the kind of thing that often gets in the way of people. And then I guess the other thing that I'd mentioned is just like an awareness of what the job is. I think sometimes people feel like their job is still to like move the hands of the ICs. And that can get very difficult versus like keeping an eye on incentives or even just understanding that you are designing a system versus being directly hands-on. I think it's just, it's a big shift. It's a big shift in how you think about stuff. Like, what are you rewarding? How are you rewarding it? Are you publicly thanking people? Are you pulling people aside and, you know, having the conversations you need to have in private versus public voice inflection, all of those types of things, the way that they affect people when you actually have this kind of power, those types of things I think are really hard. You know, for example, like I didn't realize that certain things about my facial expressions could really deeply affect people or the way that I reply to a message in Slack. I think a classic one is like 
everybody complains about this, like the manager sending a, a cryptic message in Slack, just saying like, hey, do you have a minute? And then disappearing into a meeting, you know, and then people just being terrified until that manager reappears and has the conversation. That's the kind of thing that like, if the power dynamic didn't exist, then that wouldn't be an issue. You're, but I think as a manager, especially a new manager, you don't know yet how to wield all this power and you don't necessarily realize the way that it's affecting the people around you. So those are a lot of stuff, but... <laughs> Thank you for sharing. And so much of the underbelly of so much of what you're sharing is self-awareness and self-management in terms of emotional intelligence. So who am I? Who am I showing up? How can I express my values in a way that's inspiring and also true to my team, but also true to the organization? But then also manage, do I have an uptick in my voice or is my voice just kind of like this? Do I have these crazy facial expressions or how is my tone in Slack? How is my tone over email? How is my, when stepping into that higher level role, it's all amplified. And in that same vein, so you've already called out so many things <laughs> um, that I feel like folks are like, okay, so maybe I won't be a manager, but I'm happy I came to this talk. <laughs> but <laughs> You can are- learn, you can learn. <laughs> but are, there, are there parts of the management job that you found are usually invisible to ICs? Absolutely. There are so many of them that are invisible to ICs. And I think this is why, this is part of the reason I was so inviting of people who aren't even considering managing to come to this, because I think so many people have managers that are stuck in meetings all day and have no idea what they do. So there's a lot of things like, you know, and it depends on whether or not this is somebody who's like a, an entry level manager or kind of moving up into like managing managers, et cetera. The biggest thing that I would say is that most people have the illusion that their manager alone makes the calls about everything that they do. Usually what's actually happening is your manager is doing some kind of delicate dance to balance the decision-making and influence things around the organization so that they can get the best for the team, for you, for their outcome. And all of those things have to get balanced. Usually the decisions that they're facing are a bunch of difficult trade-offs where there is no right or wrong answer. One of the things that I like in management too is like, okay, do you remember when you were a kid and you loved playing and the adults would sit around and talk and you were like, why are they so boring? It's so much more fun to play. And then you become an adult and you're like, oh, they were talking about elections and taxes and you know infrastructure and the cost of housing and that stuff affects me. Oh, okay. So that's like the same thing that happens when you go into management. I'll just give you some examples. There's a lot more, but I'll give a couple. One of them is advocating for headcount. Say like you're way overburdened and your manager can tell. They might tell you, they might not tell you, but behind the scenes, they might be in some companies, like they might have great support. They can probably get the headcount they need. Most of the time, they're going to have to advocate and they might even have to, in some toxic places, get pitted against their peers, which hopefully nobody ever winds up in a situation like this, but it does happen, to advocate for staff on their team. So that's one thing. I think the biggest thing comes around performance. A lot of the times, different companies do it differently, but a lot of the times your manager is having to calibrate, meaning they have to speak to other managers and all of the managers discuss all of their reports. And that calibration process is so that you don't wind up with easy grading in one part of the organization and hard grading in another part of the organization. So that's an example of something that most ICs never know that calibration happened. I remember not knowing about it for probably the first 17 or 18 I can't even remember, like a very long time. I had no idea that that was something that happened. That calibration tends to, the higher you are in an organization. So if you're like staff or principal, those like the higher levels, that stuff starts being under scrutiny more and more. And sometimes if you're advocating for those types of things as a manager, those conversations might have to go even up to the executive level for a promotion to happen. So that is like a huge amount of invisible work. And then the tough trade-offs that I was mentioning earlier, this is happening constantly because a manager needs to keep the confidentiality of a lot of things that you might be going through as an IC. If something that you're doing is affecting someone else on the team or affecting a bunch of other work, that manager is having to navigate how to make sure that the work is still happening and the productivity and the mood is still good without disclosing confidential information of what might be going on with one of your teammates. And I think that's one of the hardest things because as an IC, you look at the situation and it may seem like your manager is operating irrationally, (laughs) but it may be that there's something within confidentiality or some really difficult trade-offs that they're having to make. And you're just seeing the tail end of that. Not all managers are super conscientious and doing that. 
type of thing. But I think, you know, in my experience, whenever things like that came up, it was really, really difficult because all of that work was invisible. Oftentimes, they're not necessarily going to tell you how hard they're advocating for you or what kinds of issues they're managing because they might be, yeah, they might be things that they can't share because maybe somebody on your team is going through something really rough. Maybe nobody else knows about it. So, yeah, that's a little bit. <laughs> There's so much more to all of these answers, but I'm giving as much as I can in the amount of time we have. <laughs> for those challenges that are invisible and also that we've already spoken of today, what are things that, minus them being here right now and listening to this talk, what are things that folks can start to do to start to develop these skills that are maybe invisible to them? Maybe there is a manager training, maybe there is something with designed to be, who knows? But what are things that folks can do to start to grow these skills to better navigate these challenges? I think one of them is to start thinking critically about systems of power within an organization. And this is really where a lot of the systems thinking comes into place, like, which is like starting to understand what are the incentives and values and you know, emotions that are driving different people's behavior around the organization, you know, those are the types of things that allow you to advocate for your team laterally, you know, managing up. There's actually less and less support for you, the higher up that, you know, things go in the organization. It's actually people, you know, it's a cliche to say it's lonely at the top, but, but yeah, I mean, there is kind of less and less guidance of, for the work. So understanding how to see yourself and see the way that things work as part of systems of power. I just actually, and I would love that in general for society, <laughs> not just for management. And then I think the other thing, and this is actually a, an answer to two of your questions is start working on how you design the experience people have working with you and how you can design feedback systems for yourself so that you're not only experiencing your world from your own standpoint and your own actions, but you're also starting to like find ways for people to give you information on, on how it's landing for them. It's important to know that this is not, you're not going to be perfect to everybody. You're not going to be perfect for everyone on the team. There's no way, right? Different people like different management styles. And the bigger your team grows, the less likely it is that you're going to please everybody. But you should at least know. You know, sometimes I interviewed managers or other leaders who aren't hungry for knowing what they're criticized for or who aren't super aware of it. And I think that's when you start getting into dangerous territory, assuming that you're somebody who wants to manage well. You at least want to be aware, even if it's not fixed, just be aware of what your shortcomings might be or where you might be causing people pain, even if you can't fix it right away. I think it's really. What I see happen, and probably a lot of y'all have seen this happen in organizations, is that you know managers talk a lot about feedback and the importance of receiving feedback well. And then you'll see somebody in the organization give that manager feedback, and then it doesn't always necessarily land well the other direction. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing. And then you know, and then people stop telling the manager anything because nobody wants to hurt their feelings because they wield power. And then the manager winds up surprised when something's going wrong in their organization. You know, and human minds will do all kinds of fancy stuff to keep you from knowing things that might hurt you, you know, especially if you, you are most likely to be unaware of something that you're doing that's harming others in an area that you most closely identify with yourself as. I don't know if that mm -hmm. makes sense, but, but that's the thing I think. Having that level of emotional maturity and really looking out for ways that you might be affecting people or systems in ways that are not what you intend, you know, from there you can learn. Because mm -hmm. if, you know, one of the things that happened to me when I started out was like, and somebody I was working with is like, you are not good at delegating. And I was like, wow. And then I started delegating. And I was like, thank you so much for telling me that because I didn't know that I was, you know, causing this problem. Most of the things that I feel like ultimately wound up making me better at managing are things that I learned because people give me difficult feedback. And I think it's really important to positively reinforce that. You know, there's a point where, you know, you also have to decide whether or not to take the feedback or not, but you're all designers. And so <laughs> you're doing that already. But in this case, you need to be able to treat it the same, more similarly to how you might treat your customers or your users or whoever it is that you're building for. Because, you know, when you design a page or a mobile app or whatever it is that you're designing and people aren't hitting the button you need them to hit, 
or they aren't taking the action or they aren't engaging, you don't get mad at them for like not understanding it, right? You're like, oh, okay, like, I guess I need to design this differently. (laughs) And now you're doing that, but you're doing it for the employee experience. One thing that we actually spoke about in the design to be training this week, and I feel like what you're alluding to a lot is a growth mindset. And it's hard, especially what you said of when you hold these certain values or certain identities so close to you and someone pokes you in that spot that's so, 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 so close to you, it hurts. It hurts. It makes it a lot harder to say, okay, what can I learn from this? But this constant asking this question over and over, okay, what can I learn from this? helps to build that muscle slowly and slowly and slowly. Yeah, for sure. One, I want to be mindful of our time because we're going to switch to questions from folks on the call soon. So if you have questions, start to populate them in the chat. But we're going to have a few more questions over here. So we've spoken a lot about challenges. And one aspect that I really do want to touch on is inclusivity and where that relates in terms of challenges. Yeah. I mean, I think that I just saw the statistic that it was funny. I think it was um, Kat Velos retweeted it and said, like, nobody is surprised. It was something like 84% of C-level executives think that they have a grip on like issues around inclusivity and DEI. And it was like serving women POC and women of color. Like it was something like 20 something percent feel that (laughs) their C-level executive has a grip on DEI slash inclusion. And I think we're really at an inflection point with that because with the level of current inequality and the sort of unrest and the pandemic and everything that's going on in the world right now, I think that there's like very, there's already very low trust in authority, you know, just the entire way that labor is arranged in in this country and compensated is coming into question, which actually I think is a good thing. And so I think that trust and understanding how bias and structural inequities are perpetuated through the systems that managers and directors and VPs and executives design. I think it's, you know, it's either you leave those policies and those structures in place and everybody keeps on talking as if they care and not lifting a finger or like, you know, we all collectively take a look at every single point in that hiring, in that employee journey and ask ourselves the questions of like, okay, how is my job description perpetuating something? How is the way that I let someone go perpetuating something? Actually, here's another example. When you asked about something invisible to ICs, the entire process of performance management when somebody isn't performing, if a manager is doing that, they cannot tell you that they're doing that for anybody on your team. And that's where a place that things get very dicey. We haven't touched on that at all about performance improvement. And performance improvement and firing are two things that are like, managers have to do that stuff. And that's that's not fun, but it's also really important because if you've got somebody who's not performing, it can really drag down the rest of the team. So making that decision is is really important. But that's the kind of thing that like, you know, people need to understand what is the criteria and whether or not the criteria to do that is being managed fairly, right? If you think about the unfair way of managing, it's like somebody irritates the manager and they take it badly and then they find an excuse to fire somebody, right? That's like the nightmare situation that oftentimes gets talked about. And those are the types of things I think really need to get scrutinized right now. Like every single point in the system, how are structural inequities being perpetuated or not? I think that there can be, there's oftentimes this dialogue around like, oh, lowering the bar, you know, we might be lowering the bar, you know, that sort of thing. But I think a lot of the times what actually happens is that there are unspoken criteria and unspoken norms of how people should conduct themselves in the workplace. A lot of the times they're formed from sort of the majority culture of, from what I understand is mostly white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture is what I feel like I've noticed. I'm saying this as a person who's immigrated to this country. And what I've mostly noticed is the sort of, there's a lot of unspoken acceptable norms within the workspace that people expect to be met. Same thing goes with certain types of degrees, who gets in, right? Every step of the system for structural inequity has these factors that are built in that perpetuate them. And so I think it's really important for people to consider also what are the invisible rules? Like what are the invisible things that people are navigating that other people take for granted? There's a fantastic framework called multicultural organizational design. There's actually a paper written about it. And people can take a look at that and sort of see how to rate the organization that they're working in as far as how it is. The sort of like top state is when there isn't a dominant culture anymore. 
So everybody's differences are celebrated versus like, we are all the same. And I'm glad you're here, even though you're different from the rest of us. Could you go get your photo taken with the pamphlet at HR and be on the front of our thing, even though you like feel very lonely, you know, like that we need to get past that stuff. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of work to be done. I think that overwhelmingly, like the incentive systems, if you ladder them up, like how an IC is incentivized, how a manager, and by the way, I'm not saying that nobody has agency, right? Like even if you're operating within an incentive system, you could choose how you behave, even if what you are doing is not incentivized. So I'm not saying that. But if you do look at the incentive systems and you ladder them all the way up to managers and all the way up to executives, and from the executives, you go to the board, and then you go from the board over to the stock market if it's a public company, or you go to like investors if it's still private and like not yet public, what are people being incentivized to do? A lot of the time, it isn't to put extra work and care into a lot of these points in the employee experience. Even though from a long-term perspective, like those would actually work out well, work out better. You know, for example, one of the things that I did in designing the team rubric was the top level, you know, if you are trying to make it to principle, you are floating the boats higher across the team versus saying like, oh, you do the best product work. It's like, no, like it's clear that you help everybody around you also get better at their skill set. So that starts to be incentivized, right? But I think oftentimes that's not the norm. And then it just makes it really, really hard to push against the systems. So that's the challenge. That was a long-winded way of saying that's that's what I think the challenge is, is the kind of individualism and structural inequities have tendrils that have just curled them their way around at all the points in the system. So it's really going to take all of us to pull them apart again. One last question on my end, and then we're going to get to everyone's questions. So everything that we've spoken about today falls in the umbrella of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious from your perspective, why it's important for designers to invest in this skill set. Designers in general or design managers? Let's say design managers. Let's say design managers. Yeah. I think that, you know, I don't want to prescribe anybody's values onto them, but I think without investing in EQ, without investing in the sort of emotional intelligence as a manager, you're much more likely to be blindsided by just about everything as far as the behavior of people on your team. And I think that a lot of the times when I speak to like really talented people managers, they're the ones who can see people for who they are and accept them for who they are and really deeply understand. It makes them on the sort of selfish, if I were to talk about this from an individualistic perspective, having this deep emotional intelligence actually, and this is going to be really funny if this gets quoted out of context, it actually helps you manipulate people better because you understand what's important to someone that isn't you, right? That way you're not projecting your own values and ideals and everything onto somebody else. This also applies to managing up, managing across, working cross-functionally. You need to be able to speak to people and offer people things that align with the way they work as a person, not what you project onto them. So that's like the Slytherin manipulative like <laughs> answer. And then I think that the less the like holistic collectivist, you know, let's make a better world together, like which I genuinely believe is that I think this is really the only way if you think about it people are spending 40 hours a week, you know, in these work systems and so many people are coming out of it so traumatized, burnt out, you know, people leave the field and it's strange to me how people that can be so pro-progress, so like, I just want progress or I just want things to get better, don't put the care into making sure that the people who are qualified to do that work can do their best work. You know, so it kind of reminds me of like people who, you know, maybe they work in some field of research, right? And they're like, I just like, I care so much about the progress in this field of research. And then finally, like a woman joins their research team and they like harass her. I'm like, okay, so do you care about the progress in the research or or you care about, I don't know, whatever it is that is going on and maybe not your brain to like be harassing this woman, right? Like, what do you actually care about? So if we say that we care, you know, about the world and the experience that people are having on a day-to-day basis and we care, or if we even think about caring about the products that we're building and like, ideally not doing it to destroy things further, then these are things you have to pay attention to. Otherwise, you're acting out of alignment, right? This is just, it's not logical. (laughs) So that's my answer to that. (laughs) Yeah. 
Thank you. So switching to questions in the chat. So the first question is from Jan Jan. So two questions. Did you have to learn any new skill sets to be able to talk not only to product and engineering, but also executive level managers in order to better justify your designs? And two, as a manager, how do you organize and operationalize your team's workflow? Yeah, those are both great questions. Okay, so the first one, yeah, I did feel like executive level managers. So, and this is actually, I'm going to keep answering your previous question, which was about like uh, investing EQ and emotional intelligence. If you think about the kinds of things that are on the plate, like if you stay curious about what kinds of things are on the plate of an executive, some of which is going to be invisible, right? Because remembering that it's an iceberg and there's probably a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Being able to empathize with the fact that they've got essentially, I mean, I would say sometimes it's like a nearly impossible job to do super, super well across the board. Actually, not nearly. There's no way that they can do everything that's on their plate well every day and every minute, right? And so being able to succinctly provide the context, the trade-off, the decision, the expected results in smaller sound bites that somebody can understand when they've had to context switch like every 30 minutes for the last few years, like 40 to 60 hours a week, like that's definitely a skill. <laughs> and I think the bullets that I just mentioned is like, you know, context trade-offs, like here's the possible choices or decisions, depending on what it is. Here's what I need from you. Here's why it should matter to you. Here's the context, here's decision, trade-offs, expected outcomes, that sort of thing. Being able to summarize those things really quickly and succinctly in a way that speaks to things that they care about, that you know they care about because you've, you know, looked for that evidence. Those, I think that is, that is definitely a skill that's really different from talking to somebody who's like working deeply in the product and is just like, I just want the best experience for the user, you know, or, or the customer. Well, as when you're speaking to an executive, it might be that, I don't know, the pandemic happened and the entire business model fell apart and they had to lay off 1500 people or something like that, right? You might be in that kind of a situation, in which case you need to be able to speak to that concern, the business concern, which oftentimes is the case with product and engineering. But I think at the executive level, you need to be able to hit that note like more succinctly. I hope that answers your question. As a manager, how do you organize and operationalize your team's workflow? That it depends a lot on the product and it depends a lot on the people. The way that I did it, and I think different teams work differently, is I laddered everything down from the quarterly slash annual goals. So we had to agree on annual team goals and objectives that were going to be measurable in whatever ways. And I broke those down into quarters and I broke those down into weeks. And so each person knew which part of their work was laddering up to the company goals. And then I also had an additional like one or two light items of personal goals that came from a combination of somebody's self-assessment and their own goals and their, their own career goals as well as like feedback if they were somebody that had already been on the team over time and they were working on something specific that was rolled in as well. You know, obviously the way that you itemize things, that's kind of, they're always interwoven. So it's a little arbitrary, but at least that helps to systematize it. And, you know, for my directs, it would be one thing for other people on the team, it would be another, but generally like every two weeks, you want to make sure that everybody knows what they're doing and how it's like laddering up to something, something that matters more, not matters more, but something that matters to the greater org so that they can understand that context. But it really does depend because this is the kind of thing that can get affected by product is can be affected by engineering, like, you know, depending on the structure of your company and the designers on your team, right? Like some designers are like, that might not be the best match for how they work. So I think that's part of the reason that management is so different from like designer engineering is you can't like, you know, write some code that's going to work on every single item in the array that you put into that function, right? Like that's just not how humans work. <laughs> so you do have to tailor it a little bit to people. Next question is from Brian. So I was hired as a creative director and in two years I was I hired five junior designers, created a design system, revamped the website, rebranded for materials, implemented workflow systems, as well as manage the day-to-day -day billable projects. Just wondering if I have a leg to stand on when my next review comes up, example promotion. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Okay. So another part of something that happens inside companies is like there's, depending on how organized they are, right? Like if you're in a teeny tiny startup, they might not have this at all. But if they're like, Ideally, if they're like 150, 200 people and bigger, they have clear ideas of what it takes for each of the bands. Like there should be criteria of what those things are. My advice for everyone is like try and find out as clearly as possible what 
those are? Like, what are the criteria? Some people are cagey about it and they don't share it. Some of them you can't share because HR will literally say, like, you can't share this criteria that we have for grading people. But I mean, it sounds like you've been doing a lot. The only question I would have is like, do these things ladder up to priorities that you know exist on the team? And can you speak to the impact that they're having in the terms that the company or the manager has set up? The other thing is that, Brian, depending on how high up you are level-wise, a promotion might mean that your manager is having to calibrate with all of their peers and then calibrate with all of the higher-ups. And it might actually have to go up to the top-level calibration, which is like usually among VPs or C-level people to agree. That's where things get a little dicey. So, you know, if you have a manager who's like excited to advocate for you, then like Godspeed. I hope they're able to do it. And the way that you can help them is by putting that case together if you want to. I don't know. Some companies make you put your own promotion kit together. I think that's a terrible idea because guess who's great, better at self-promoting than other people? Like per my earlier point, that shouldn't be that way. So, but it is helpful if you know how to advocate for the things that you've done in the terms that the company speaks, right? In the terms that the organization speaks. The reason I say that is because I've seen people put a tremendous amount of effort into things that are great and that really help the team, but they weren't, they're not the language of the organization. And so they don't go appreciated, right? This happened a lot with like early kind of ERG work, right? For example, people would put so much work into making the experience better for everybody else on the team but nobody in management and nobody higher up valued those things. And so that's why I think that the efforts that you put in have to fit into, unfortunately, into the systems the company is setting up for how they judge your performance. But good luck. Next question from Giorgio. Are the human part of management and the design the system, not the part, always together if you become a manager? Can one focus on the design part? I mean, you can... But I would say the design part, focusing on the design part only works best when the team is already humming along, right? So say it's like you've got three people on your team, you've worked together forever, everybody kind of knows what's up, you don't really need to worry about it. But if you're, you know, coming into a situation where maybe there's some people on the team that are like really struggling and the engineers and the product people are like very unhappy with them. Or, you know, other people on the design team are un- unhappy with them, or you're coming in and you don't have a team and you have to build it, or you're, you've got one person and then you're part of the product all of a sudden becomes the focus and really needs to grow and succeed. Those are all situations where you can't just focus on the design part. So a lot of it depends on what's going on in the company. And you need to be, you know, this is another reason why, like I said, it's not a function that you can write, pass in every element of the array and do the same thing to it. It's the same thing with situations. You know, it's constantly changing. Your business could be affected by a natural disaster and you have to like refocus a bunch of things. So it'd be great if you could just focus on the design part, but it requires at least some stretch of stability, I would say. Another question from Jan Jan. Hopefully we can maybe keep this one short because I want to get to other people's questions as well. So another question for both Maylee and Rachel. There will definitely be more coming. Aside from this wonderful, thoughtful event, how do you find other design leaders to connect with in order to have more conversations about the challenges of being a design leader? Man, that's a good question. I mean, I feel like I've gotten really lucky in that I've been invited to events that are for design leaders to meet each other, as well as actually one of the things that was most interesting is when I left my last job, I actually helped have initial conversations with all the candidates to replace me. And that was a total blast. I was like, wow, we are so eccentric. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of the same, the same type of thing. You know, once you wind up in the position, people reach out to you and you say yes and you go get coffee or, you know, you get invited to events that are specifically for design leaders. The only other plug that I'd give is follow along with Design to Be and we'll have more design leader sick uh, things coming soon. So a question from Mark. So it seems difficult to be considered for manager positions when you've never had a director or manager title. How do you recommend approaching interviewing to be considered for a management position? Yeah, that's a great question because a lot of it will depend on the capacity of the organization to train you up. So, I mean, if it's something that you're interested in, I think approaching it with all of the experience that you've had, like evidence experience, like in this situation, I did this and this was the result. If you have anything along those that contain parts of what the management job is, I think that's helpful. But a lot of the times, 
I'll speak to what I did, which is when people came to me and asked about management or potentially moving into management, you know, I'd ask them about timeline and I'd look at the capacity that I had or other people had it to train this person up. Part of the issue with people generally will hesitate to hire in somebody they don't know directly into management because they're going to have to put, if they want to do it well, they're going to have to put effort into training you up and they don't know you yet. And so I think oftentimes you, what you're really doing is vetting their ability to support your journey versus proving to them that you can do it. Because if you've, I mean, if you've never done it, then, you know, then it's really about whether or not they think you have the potential and whether or not they have the resources to train you. From Kevin, how do you balance the high ambiguity and lack of specifics at the executive level versus projecting confidence and providing direction and a sense of direction and stability to your reports? And I feel like that kind of goes with Jenny's question below about imposter syndrome and how you manage that. I feel like they're <laughs> semi, semi Oh my goodness. Yeah, these are juicy <laughs> questions. Kevin, I think that is, that's something that I feel like you have to develop as a leader in your specific way, right? There are, and it depends a little bit on the company culture. There are some cultures where, you know, it's going to take a minute to get people used to you strategically showing moments of vulnerability versus projecting confidence. And I think a lot of that also depends. It's it's all a feedback loop, right? You can kind of come in. You don't really tend to come in and just get it right from the start, which is why that feedback system matters so much. I think that I personally try to be as transparent as possible, not just because people say they like it, but because the more that the people on my team are trained empathically to understand what I am trying to do for the team and what I might be up against, the easier my job gets, right? So I definitely veered towards the like, here's this mass of stuff that's ambiguous. What we're going to focus on is this thing because this thing we can control. So what we're going to do right now is like X, Y, and Z. So, and I like that my former manager did this as well. She's like, here's the five things that are on fire right now. I can't take care of all five things. I know number three is affecting you really badly right now, but I can only do one and two because until one and two are solved, three can't be solved. She and I both had that habit of walking people through the process as much as possible so that they can understand. The other thing I'll say with Kevin and Jenny, there's a way of saying that you don't, especially when you have reports, right? And they're looking to you and you need to provide that sense of stability. There's a way of saying that you don't know without leaving people being like, well, now what? Right? So you also need to give, you'll have to have an idea in your mind of like what you're going to do about it. So if somebody's like, can we do blah? For example, you know, for a long time, we really wanted to hire an intern. I want to really wanted to hire an intern. Somebody on my team like really wanted to hire an intern. I was hitting blocks at HR, which is that this thing happens a fair bit, right? As a manager, you start, you have an HR person that you pair with. And sometimes you want to do something and you're butting up against company policy in your report is like, why is this not working? And you're like, because this policy, right? That's happening to a lot of people right now with remote work, right? The company's saying like, oh, you can't work more than six months in like this country. And it's not because like HR is making up a random rules because of a tax law, right? <laughs> so things like that will happen all the time and it's exasperating. So there's a way of saying like, I don't know the answer to this. Here's what I'm going to do to find out. Like next week, I'm talking to so-and-so. I should be able to have a reply to you for the week after. If not, it's going to be this date. You know, I know this sucks. You have to acknowledge the feelings, debug the emotional corpus before the actual problem, right? And then talk about what you're going to do, even if you don't know, right? As opposed to being like, Anna, I don't know if that's going to be possible. But if I say to you like, all right, here's why I don't have an answer for you. Here's what I'm going to do about it. And here's what I'm going to get back to you. I know that this is affecting you in X, Y, Z way. I know. I know. It sucks. I get it. And here's everything that I'm trying to do to fix it. That's kind of the approach that I tried to take. It feels in line with Helena's question around how honest should you be with their reports when it's clear that you're offing up or generally how do you think of vulnerability as a person in power? It seems very in line with what you were just saying as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it is very related. I think it's, um, you know, it depends on the person. And there's always this tricky thing with communication. You know, if you've read these books, they'll say like, well, what you say and what the other person hears like can be totally two different things. The way that I approached it personally is I think the vulnerability is important because I think that if people have you on a pedestal or they don't understand how you're human or the less that they understand how you're operating logically, which is part of the challenge, obviously, when there's these huge swaths of job that are invisible to them, the more empathy they're able to have for what you're up against. So I personally like to 
I'd like to be able to be vulnerable whenever possible. But I think that there's a sort of blurry line between vulnerability and sort of centering yourself slash navel gazing too much, which I've also seen people do. And so, yeah, I guess what you're saying, Rachel, like it, it is very similar in that you're like, okay, you know, my big challenge right now is this and this. And what I'm doing about it is blah, blah, blah. I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, my hope is that this and this, so that you're not like, oh, I just really struggle with, you know, it's just really hard. Cause then you do, you go into that and then somebody likes, they're feeling that with you. They don't need that. They need to feel like, you know, you're working on figuring it out. So even if you don't know, or even if you feel like you didn't do that right, focusing on what you're going to do better the next time, that's exactly what you'd want from them too, right? If they screwed something up for them to be like, okay, so you know what, from now on, I'm going to make sure that you have like the full context before I plunge into this conversation about a design decision. And you'd be like, that's awesome. So, you know, if you screw something up with them, you can just say like, you know, what I've learned from this is here's what I need to do better next time. Like, how does that sound? You know? Thank you, everyone, for your questions. And one last question to Maylee that can leave you all with something. If there's one thing that you can ask of, whether it be the folks on the call now or folks listening at a later date in regards of transitioning into management or anything that we've spoken of, maybe something they can get started on, what could it be? And I think it, you know, a lot of you sound like you're already doing this, but really seeing yourself and your relationships as like as constant works in progress and, you know, designing feedback systems around you so that you can constantly improve them, you know, knowing that you still can't please 100% of people. But I think that as anybody in the world, regardless of your role, no matter what, like thinking of the way that you show up as something that's being designed and iterated on constantly and really thinking about it in those terms so that it doesn't wind up being so personal. I think that is what I'd ask of people. I've run into so many people that have risen all the way up leadership and just don't have those systems and then wind up blindsided by incredible amounts of dysfunction in their organizations. And that stuff is just so disillusioning. You know, there are people who carry power, they're getting paid so much money to do what they do, and they're not aware of like basic ways that they're perpetuating a lot of unhappiness. So I think having the skill set to gather that information about yourself and be able to just, you know, take that deep breath and be like, all right, what am I going to do about this? What am I going to look for? Like, I think that'll, you know, improve things so much for everyone over time. I'm going to take a deep breath when I get off this call. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Maylee, for your wisdom and for sharing your insights. I know I definitely learned a lot, and I know everyone on the call as well did. If for folks who are on the call, if you're curious to learn more about design to be head to design to becom follow us at design underscore to be on all the socials. And I hope to see you soon. That wraps up another episode of Design to Be Conversation. Thanks so much for listening. If you are curious for more ways to invest in your EQ, to be a more empowered, educated, and effective designer, head over to designtobe.com. That is D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E.com. You can take our design process EQ quiz or sign up for our newsletter to receive the latest Design to Be community building, live offerings, and self-inquiry guidance directly to your inbox. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you may listen. Be sure to share this podcast with a fellow designer who's interested in investing in their EQ. And again, thanks so much for listening.